My uh, subject this morning is the misunderstanding the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Bible says that the truth will set us free. So we need to confront some of the confusion that there is in regarding the real facts about some of the teachings that we find in the Christian world today. Last week, I talked about the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5. And today, I'm going to finish with the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Now, I'm sure that most of you are aware that when the Bible was written, there was no chapters or verses. These were done later to help us try to read the Scripture and to give us a little bit better understanding of the subject matter. For example, I have the New King James Version of the Bible here, and it's it's broken up into verses, but then there's subtitles to go along with it. For example, in Matthew 5, it starts out with, Christ fulfills the law. And then uh, after uh, 20 verses, it says that murder begins in the heart. And then after a few more verses, it says adultery is in the heart. And then another subtitle is marriage is sacred and binding. Jesus forbids oaths. Now that's why you have some religious group that will not salute the flag or not honor the flag or not give an oath. They cannot go into the military because they won't swear allegiance or give an oath, and they get that out of Jesus' forbidding oath, um, oaths. So then it goes on, go the second mile, love your enemies. And then in chapter 6, it goes, do good to please God. And then, uh, beginning with verse 5, it says the model prayer. And that's where we get into the Lord's Prayer. And then it says that, that uh, fasting to be seen only by God, lay up treasures in heaven. This is all in chapter 6. But chapter 5, we found that the dividing line in, in the Christian history is the cross. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, that was a dividing line. It wasn't his birth. It was his death on the cross that was the dividing line in human history to the Christian. There was an old covenant that God made in the Old Testament. And a new covenant was made after the cross. Now, the law represented the old and grace represented the new. However, we must keep in mind that salvation has always been through faith. If you go to Hebrews 10, it lists all the patriots, or I should say Hebrews 11, I think it is. It's a list of all of the patriarchs, and it starts with Noah, and then it goes to Abraham, and Abraham was 400 and some years before the law of Moses. 
And the Bible says that all of these men were saved through faith. So there has never been anyone that has been saved by keeping the law. God is the same today as he is tomorrow and yesterday. It's important that we understand the setting and the time frame that was given when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave that Lord's Prayer before the cross. It was given to the Jewish people that were under the law. It was never meant for the heathens, or in some translations, it was never meant for the Gentiles or the Christians, as we will see. In Matthew 5, we see that Jesus is going to magnify the inner uh, heart of the gospel, or heart of the law, I should say. And then he's going to amplify the law so that the Jewish people can see that it is impossible to keep the law of God. So, we, I mentioned last week, when we came to the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus' amplification was when, when the Bible says, do not murder, that's one of the Ten Commandments. The application that Jesus said, anyone who is angry with his brother is guilty. And then it said, he said, you have heard that you, you're not supposed to commit adultery. And Jesus' amplification was, anyone who looks upon a woman with lust is guilty. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we can be answerable to the Sanhedrians. He said that you must reconcile with your brother before you give your animal sacrifice to the Lord. Now, we don't compare ourselves with the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't uh, see if our righteousness is, is better than they are. But Jesus told them that your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 5. Now, we don't amputate limbs or pluck out eyes if we sin. We don't fear hellfire if we call someone a name. And then to demonstrate the impossibility of the law, he said, whatever you have, give it. If somebody sues you, give it. If somebody asks you to loan them money, loan it to them. And then he says, you should be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, you talk about an impossibility, that would be it. To try to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you were, you would be a God. But this is what Jesus told them in Matthew 5 under the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus continues in chapter 6. He says that 
When you make charitable deeds, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I don't have the foggiest idea what that means. I'm not sure if anybody does. I have read what some scholars have said about it, and I'm not sure that they understand it. Then Jesus goes on, and he says, don't pray meaningless prayers. He says, pray in secret. In some modern-day translation, it says, go to your closet, shut the door, pray in the dark, pray in secret. And because of that, years ago, there was a sort of a movement within the Christian church that maybe you should find a closet. And I am guilty, I did it too. I emptied out the closet, and then I decided that would be my prayer room. And so I cleaned it all up, put a little carpet in there and everything, an additional carpet, and I would go in there at 5.30 in the morning, and that would be my prayer closet. Well, they got that from this text. Now, so do not, or I should say, do not pray with vain repetition. And the Bible says in many translations, like the Gentiles do or like the heathens do. Don't do those things. They're meaningless. And so who is Jesus talking to is the question. It's in the Bible, Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, but who is Jesus speaking to? He's certainly not speaking to the heathens or the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Jewish people. That's who he's talking to. After his disciples, after they heard what Jesus was saying, they seemed to be a little confused. And so they went to Jesus and they said, could you teach us how to pray? And here's where we come into the Lord's Prayer. And he says that, okay, this is how you should pray. And then he gives them guidelines as an example. I like what the King James, the New King James Version puts it. He, it says there, in the manner. Jesus says, well, in the manner, and then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. But what do we do? We take the guidelines, and then we call it the Lord's Prayer. And then, like the heathens do, we pray that prayer over and over and over and over again around the world. Now, keep in mind that most Christians never really think through the Lord's Prayer. They just repeat it. I think I've repeated that well over a couple thousand times, maybe. We just repeat it. And so I'd like to go through it this morning. 
pray this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Now that's the first half. The Jews were fine with that. As they listened to Jesus, they said, okay, this is good, this is good. Now, of course, the Jews thought that thy kingdom come, that, that the Messiah would come with an army and destroy the, Ro the Romans and set up Jerusalem as the capital of the world. That's what they thought. And so that part of the prayer gets us into a little bit of trouble. And this is what I want us to look at. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the as we, in the Greek translation, it is kind of a mirror-like. So this is what the people were saying. Lord, Look at me, examine me, and look how I have forgiven others, and then would you forgive me the same way? That's a pretty serious prayer. If that's what we're asking, that's pretty serious. Now, I'm not going to try to interpret this scripture for you. I'm going to let Jesus do that. Jesus is going to do that as we go along. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation. Do we believe that Jesus leads us to temptation? Is that New Testament theology? That Jesus Christ would lead us to be tempted? Now, I looked at some of what some of the scholars have said about that, and, and one said this. They said, well, lead could have meant test. Well, tell me, does that make sense? That the Lord is going to test us because he's not sure on what we will do, so he will test us. That's not New Testament theology. Jesus Christ does not lead us into temptation. Well, why would it say this? Well, because under the Old Covenant, forgiveness from God was conditional. It was conditional. If you forgave, then he would forgive you. Now, somehow the prayer stops and there's a supplied word that will stop any prayer and that is amen. Amen ends the prayer. 
Now, verse 14 and 15 is Jesus' explanation for forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, here we have it. For if you forgive other people, then your sins against, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But here's a clincher. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, is that New Testament theology? Or is that under the Old Covenant? Because under the Old Covenant, you were forgiven, not first. You had to go and forgive anyone and everyone who has sinned against you. Then, after you do all that, then God will forgive you. Now, I have several commentary sets, and I went to one that was quite conservative, and I wanted to get a conservative point of view, a modern-day conservative point of view, and this is what I read. Only when we are right with our fellow man, and I'm quoting, only when we are right with our fellow man can we be right with God? Well, no wonder there's so much confusion about forgiveness. As an evangelist for many years, I would give people the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And I would ask them to come forward, come to the altar, and come just the way you are. And when you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, all of your sins are forgiven. All of them. But according to Matthew 6, I was doing it wrong. Because Matthew 6, I should have said, now before you come to the altar, you must go home and forgive all those who have sinned against you first. And then God will forgive you your sins. Then you can come back and come forward in an altar call. That's the way Matthew 6 says you should have been done. But remember, the cross is the dividing line of human history. It would only make sense that we would have examples of what took place before the cross and what took place after the cross. Now, there's nothing wrong with the prayer that Jesus prayed if, if you're still living under the old covenant. If you are still under law, there's nothing wrong with it. But Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross to initiate the new covenant yet. And so he was teaching under the old. 
Sometimes I wish we could really be honest. I wish we could really be real. And I wish we could look at things and, and, and to, to say that everything that Jesus said that we're supposed to do is not right. But there's so many people who believe just that. Every word that Jesus said was true. Well, it was true at that time, of course. But here's where we get so mixed up, so confused, and we, we have a hard time balancing the religion. Most people that have given up on religion, they've given up because they can't make it balanced. It doesn't make sense. They read something like what Jesus said, like I explained to you, that I had a church member. I mean, he wasn't a church member at the time, but I baptized him and he became a church member who actually plucked out his eye, cut off his hand. Because that's what Jesus told him to do. If it causes him to sin, to do it. Now, we know that that's not what Jesus really meant. But that's what he said. He told the rich young ruler, when the rich young, uh, young ruler came to him and says, uh, uh, Rabbi, Master, what do I do to get eternal life? He said to him, keep the commandments. Is that how we get eternal life? By keeping the commandments? The rich young ruler said, oh, you mean... Um, you know, he started listing them off. You mean adultery? You mean killing, murder? No, no. He said, I, I, I keep all those things. I, I don't do those things. And Jesus said to him, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and follow me, and then you will find life. Now, Jesus said that to that man because he knew that man. He knew the audience that was there. And so he told them the truth. His problem was his riches. Now, we need to look at what happened after the cross for forgiveness. And so in Colossians, in Colossians 3.13, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have grievance against someone. Now, there is a place for us to forgive others. The Bible is very plain. But then it says, forgive them as the Lord forgave you. So what God is saying is that you already have your forgiveness. Now you forgive them like God forgave you. There's a different meaning than I have to forgive before I can get forgiven. Now, Paul, writing another letter, he says basically the same thing. He says to the Ephesians in 432, 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in Christ. Christ, when he went to the cross, he died for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. The sin issue was over at Calvary. And so he says, just as Christ, God forgave you. So under the old, we forgave in order to receive forgiveness. Under the new, we forgive because we are forgiven. A new and different motivation comes from the heart. Now remember, when you were born again, you were born of God, you were born of the Spirit, God performed surgery on you. He took out that old stony heart and he replaced it with his heart. And now we live and we act by our heart. Now, sometimes... Sometimes the power of sin gets the best of us. That's why Paul, when he wrote the letters in the New Testament, whenever he wrote a letter, he wrote it to, he said, to the saints. Now, a saint is somebody who has been set aside, sanctification, you've been set aside for holy use. Now, we all know what happened in Corinth. We know what happened in some of the other letters that Paul wrote about. All the problems that they were having. And yet he still called them saints. So we've got to get rid of that mentality that we are sinners saved by grace. That sounds good. That sounds humble. That sounds great. We are sinners saved by grace. That's, but it's not true. It's not true at all. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a saint that occasionally sins. But you are a saint. You're not a sinner. That's what the whole, the whole process was all about. That's what Jesus Christ went to the cross for, to end the sin issue. So we received a new heart. And this is what God is telling us. He's saying, because of what Christ has done, by going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world, you are not only forgiven, but your sins are remembered no more. They're remembered no more. And I can't tell you how many thousands of Christians fear the judgment. They have some idea that their name is going to come up. It's going to be a big screen or something, and all their sins are going to be posted up there. That's not true at all. You and I have passed through the judgment. We've passed through. Here's the difference 
What God was saying to us about forgiveness, he was saying that if anyone sins against you, I want you to do the same as I did for you. I want you to share with others what I did for you. I took your sins and buried them into the depths of the sea, and I remember them no more. The Holy Spirit in the Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. So our sins are forgotten. So most Christians, they confess their sins to God in order to get forgiveness from God. So they commit a sin, they confess it, the sin was written down, but now that they confessed it, it's, it, it, it's removed. There is no such thing. There is no such thing that God uses confession to remove sin. You can read this Bible from cover to cover and you'll find no such thing. The only thing that can remove sin is blood. The only thing that will, will, will give a covenant is blood. When you look at the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, what did, what did Moses do? I mean, he, they slaughtered some animals. They sprinkled blood all over everything. And then they even threw it and sprinkled it on the people. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, it was Christ's blood on the cross that did away with sin and started the New Covenant. And what's the New Covenant? Well, you can read 2 Corinthians 5.19 and the Bible will tell you that if you sin, God will not hold your sins against you. That's the new covenant. He will not hold your sins against you. Why? Because it was taken care of at the cross. Now, we go through all sorts of exercises today when it comes to the sin issue. There are some people who go to the confessional booth and they, they confess their sins and, and the, the priest hears their sins and then he gives them their punishment. It's either ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, or whatever it may be. And I've always thought that they come out with sort of a relief. They come out and they think, well, I did it, and then I, I, I said my Hail Marys, or I said my Our Fathers, and now the, the slate is clean. Now I feel good. I feel good. That's exactly the way the Jewish people felt when they did a sacrifice. They confessed their sins, and then they give, offered the sacrifice, and they felt good. 
especially on the Day of Atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement, if they forgot any sin or anything else, it was all taken care of. The Day of Atonement took care of all their sins. All their sins were forgiven whether they confessed them or not. Now, what is confession to the Christian today? I'll tell you what it is. It's thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me 2,000 years ago. Thank you for wiping the slate clean 2,000 years ago. Thank you that your word says that you will not hold my sins against me. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. True confession focuses not, doesn't focus our mind on our failures. That's not what true confession does. True confession sends us back to the finished work of Christ. It sends us back there. What leads us to a thankful heart. Listen, in the Old Testament, everything was conditional. And you had to earn everything, it seemed like. In Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus went through the list. He showed them everything that they were taught about the law was wrong. They were wrong. If they thought that the law was going to save them, they were wrong. If they thought the law was going to change their hearts, they were wrong. And so, Jesus begins to amplify everything. Murder, same as being angry. Adultery, same as looking at a woman with lust. If you're married to somebody who's been divorced, you're living in sin. If you call someone a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. You must reconcile with your brother before you present your animal offerings. You must amputate your limbs, pluck out your eyes if it's causing you to sin. And then you should pray in secret. Don't pray in public. Sell everything you have and follow Jesus. And then, to cap it all, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the New Testament, everything is free. Everything is free. Everything is a gift. There was a farmer who came to my home yesterday, out where I live, and he had some questions that he wanted me to answer. And after we got through with him, or through with that question, I looked at him and I said, did you know that you are as righteous right now as you will ever be in your life? 
He said, what? I said, let me say it again. You're as righteous right now as you'll ever be in your life. Because when you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God gave you his righteousness. In that heart of yours, that new heart that God gave you, is a righteousness that is second to none. You are as righteous as you will ever be. Will you sin? Yes, you, you probably will. Yeah, you'll give in to the flesh. But not from the heart. Never from the heart. It'll only be from the flesh. And that's why Jesus said to us, when I come back, I'm going to give you a new body that matches that perfect heart of yours because it's your body that's giving you problems. It's not your heart. And that's why in 1 John, the Bible says that you will not sin. Yes, your heart will not sin. Your heart won't, but your flesh may. If you listen to it long enough, it may. And the problem is we listen to it too much. And that's why the Bible says that we need to renew our mind, constantly renewing our mind. Now, a lot of people, they look at the Bible and they say, okay, I'll read the Bible. And that's not necessarily, that's part of it, but that's not necessarily the renewing of your mind that the Bible is speaking about. The renewing of your mind is going through what God has already done for you. He's already forgiven all of your sins. The sin issue is no problem now. Don't make it a problem. Don't focus on it. Don't make it a problem because it's not a problem with God. It's already been settled. Righteousness, the Bible says in Romans, is a free gift. Forgiveness, a free gift. You are living in a state of forgiveness. You are living in that. It's a free gift. Eternal life, it is a free gift. You cannot earn it. You'll never in this world deserve it. But you've got it. You've got it. When you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you got it. You got everything that you'll ever need. Everything. I mean, we ought to walk out of this church praising God, thanking God, giving him all the honor and glory that he deserves because of what he's done for us. We ought to walk out of here free, free to be us. Like I told the farmer, I said, you know, you're a unique person. There's nobody in this world like you. And all God wants to do is live his life through you because of your uniqueness. Nobody's like you. And God has chosen to work through you. What a privilege that all of us have. God is working through us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. We praise you and thank you from the bottom of our hearts. 
We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We're thankful for the forgiveness that you've given to us, that you've forgiven us first. We're thankful that everything that we have have and will have, you initiate. And we just respond. So this morning, we're responding to the free gift of salvation, the free gift of righteousness, the free gift of eternal life. And we thank you for it. Bless us now, I pray, for we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.